And now, a Blaze Media podcast. Welcome to it. Chewing the fat, that is. From the COVID-19 quarantine bunker, the CQB, coming in on the, uh, we're, we're in the home stretch. I believe we're at the, the final, the final length of the bunker broadcast uh, this week. And then, uh, and then we're back. So we'll see what happens. We'll see if we, uh, if we're back or not come uh, hurricane season, June 1st, uh, 2020. Oh, I had, did you have a great weekend? I know it was a big three day weekend for many people. Many people got out and about, uh, I, you know, looked out the blinds and said, man, no, I don't want to go out there. Although it was a crappy rainy day, uh, here in Texas for Memorial day itself. Uh, I don't know. A lot of people are saying it's the great American road trip summer all over again. Uh, according to surveys, they uh, claim that, uh, according to the Gas Buddy survey, uh, 36% of respondents are canceling trips that require flying. Uh, 24% plan to make shorter trips by distance. We'll see. You know, we'll see as we get to the uh, TSA uh, turnstile numbers during the uh, during the uh, during the COVID-19 update. The quarantine update. Uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see where we're at. We'll see also uh, if we rolled over to the hundred thousand death march uh, today. Uh, I thought we were going to hit it this weekend. So the numbers have really slowed down. Uh, I really did think that we were going to break a hundred thousand this weekend, and we didn't. So uh, that's good news. Uh, I know that they won't. It won't be spun that way. But we'll see by the time we get to the uh, the coronavirus update. Uh, here on Chewing the Fat, if we've actually rolled over that 100,000 death number. And, uh, you know, it's as horrible as it is, uh, it really is slowing down. So it's, you know, it's kind of good news. According to the Gas Buddy survey, though, 31% are planning to take that road trip still. Uh, I think so, too. I think uh, if you if you are planning on traveling this year, I think many more people who were would maybe fly to a city and then uh you know rent a car and drive around or uh you know uber around the city on vacation uh we'll just drive there right and uh we'll see we'll, we'll see if that actually if that actually comes to fruition but with gas prices being so cheap why not right <laughs> exactly why not <laughs> All right, well, tomorrow's the day, right? I mean, uh, we got the space uh, SpaceX launch tomorrow. Uh, they got the go-ahead. Uh, the final launch readiness was uh, given the go-ahead, ready to go in Florida. The last-minute launch preparations are being done as we speak. Uh, so we should, we may, it's possible, we could have that launch tomorrow afternoon. You know, what's uh, what's amazing to me is every time I see this and I think, okay, well, is it really going to happen? Are we going to do it? And then I see the headline that says, SpaceX first astronaut launch threatened by stormy weather. And this is exactly what we talked about on Chewing the Fat. When we have to worry about a cloud flying over Florida or flying over any area that's supposed to be our official launch site, we're not, we're not ready for space travel. We're just not. 
I mean, we could do it. And sure, we could fly up there. And I hope they do. I want everything to go as planned and get up there and, uh, you know, do your thing. But until we can get in that damn rocket and take off and go where we want to go, we are not 100% ready for space travel. I mean, we had the Virgin launch yesterday as they tried to uh, launch their uh, satellite uh, rocket off of uh, off of the airplane and off the 747 cosmic girl with launcher one attached uh and it didn't really work although it did it kind of it kind of worked and kind of didn't right i mean it it, it dropped off the plane and took off and uh, fired up a rocket and then it said "Ooh, no ooh, no we're done you can't do that sorry we're done so then it was, you know, right there, it's a failure, but it was just half of a failure. Right? I mean, it was kind of like, ooh, they could still do it. That's never been done before, but it didn't do exactly what we wanted to do. So failure. Uh, so, I mean, we're still, we're still a ways away from walking up, getting in and taking off. It's not really the air travel we've come to expect, but, you know, we'll get there. We'll get there. I have confidence that we'll get there. And with the help of uh, private industry, we seem to be getting there faster. I know uh, NASA is, uh, you know, the all-seeing, all-knowing gurus in that and have been for years, you know, except for the, you know, the past few years when all their money was shut off and they weren't doing it anymore. And they were just, we were just hitching a ride. We had to walk over to Kazakhstan and put our thumb out and hopefully they picked us up and flew us to the space station. And now we're, you know, back at it. So hopefully with NASA, the, uh, you know, private enterprise, we're back together again. Now they do have uh, social isolation experiments still going on. So if you feel like you are ready to go to Mars or do some space travel, you could spend eight months locked in a Russian lab for your experiment <laughs> i know right it sounds good it almost sounds too good to be true but it is it's true <laughs> okay you can it's the uh, nasa russia experiment and they've had other experiments remember they had the four month long study in 2019 where they lived in isolation and they do the biomedical tests well uh now they're having the, uh, and then they had the uh, uh, the Russian mock Mars mission, the Mars 500, right, where the crews spent 520 and 105 days on two separate missions in the facility. So, I mean, now, if you're fortunate enough to get chosen, you could spend eight months inside of a closed facility. <laughs> right now, how bad do you want to do it? So they're going to have, you're going to have environmental uh, aspects similar to those uh, astronauts are expected to experience on future missions to Mars. So you get to live together in isolation, you get to work on scientific projects, and you get to do everything uh, like being on the lunar surface, all of it, uh, for eight months. Huh? Now, how excited are you for that? Now, if you think they're just letting anybody in, I mean, if they like, if I wanted to be part of the program, I'm as an athletically overweight human being, 
I'm probably not going to be allowed. Probably. Okay. So, I mean, if you're like, I don't mind the social isolation. I'm all right with that. But they're looking for highly motivated U.S. citizens between the ages of 30 and 55. Candidates must speak both Russian and English proficiently. I might be a little shy there. And have an MS, a PhD, an MD, or military officer training. Applicants with a bachelor's degree or other relevant experience may also be considered. Uh, yeah, we'll take a look at it, but you probably aren't going to get it. So those who are chosen to be part of the crew will be compensated for their work. That's nice of them. That's nice of them. But if it also says that uh, there's different levels of compensation, depending on whether or not you are associated with NASA or if you are a NASA employee or a contractor. So if you're associated with NASA or an employee or a contractor, you may have already signed your life away. So if you say, you know, I, I think I could, I think I could do that. I have an, an MS, PhD, MD, and military officer training, and a bachelor degree, and other relevant experience. Uh, I should be considered. Uh, how much do I get paid? Well, you're already working for NASA, or you're a NASA employee or a contractor. You don't get anything extra. In fact, you'll be thanking us for just that regular paycheck. Off to Russia you go, my friend. Have a nice day. Oh, wait. You only speak English? Yeah, no. What if I speak English in China? Chinese? No. Uh, you have to speak Russian and English proficiently. Oh, come on. Nope. You're out. So good luck. Good luck. I hope you get the gig. Did you see the, and if you haven't, I'll, I'll, I'll post it on my uh, Twitter, at JeffyJFR. Maybe post it on uh, Facebook as well, Jeff Fisher Radio. Um Maybe post a link on Instagram as well, Jeff Fisher Radio. You can follow me on all those places. Um, the, the story, and it's always it's from you know Ring.com on the video. Of course, uh, uh, they are you know the family had the Ring camera up on the garage in the driveway, and it's a it shows a, a guy casing a house that the garage is open, and in the driveway is the family car. Windows are closed. Uh, and you can't see the little girl, this little 10-year-old girl that's sitting in the car. So the garage door is wide open, and this guy is casing the house. He walks by, and he walks up into the driveway looking at the garage like he's going to rob the place. And, you know, he just he kind of stops, and he checks it out. He's got to see if anybody's around, and he... And he, I don't know what he's going to take in the garage. It doesn't, I, I don't, in the video, it doesn't show that I saw. It doesn't show what he's looking at in the garage. Apparently, the ring camera isn't posted inside the garage. What is this family doing? So the, uh, the guy walks up to the garage, and this girl, instead of honking the horn, I mean, holy cow, she is so lucky. She opens the door and starts screaming at the guy, get out of here, and runs into the house. And the guy takes off running, and he's gone. This guy is gone down the street, man. But that girl, holy cow. I mean, good for her for, you know, opening the door and screaming and scaring the heck out of the guy. But it could have turned out ugly, uh, her jumping out of the car like that. Uh, scaring his scaring this criminal 
and down the street he runs. I mean, he could have turned and really had harmed this little girl. Uh, I don't know how you, I don't know how you, you let that not happen. Uh, you know, good for her. She was scared too. She didn't know what was going on, so she, you know, jumps out of the car and scares the heck out of this guy, and he is just he runs away, and she runs into the house, and uh, you know, all all's good that ends well. Isn't it all that ends well is good or ends good well? Yeah, whatever. But uh, man, I watched that and I thought, holy cow! I mean, it could have gotten ugly for that little girl. I'm I'm so happy that it did work out that way. And I want to say thank you. Chewing the fat, correct again. Uh, we're already seeing headlines now all weekend long. I saw headlines. U.S. city lockdowns have caused rat aggression due to lack of food waste. I told you, man, the animals are coming back. And this time, they're pissed. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, they have warned, they're listening to Jew in the Fat, of course, of unusual or aggressive behavior in American rats. <laughs> uh, that is true with any of these animals, my friends. They are out for what the heck is going on. Where's the people? Where's our food? What is going on? We need to, we're hungry, and somebody has given us something to eat, okay? So, I mean, I'm talking about, uh, they, were, they were talking about uh, rats were observed resorting to open warfare, according to the story. <laughs> you do not want to live in a big city where the rats are now pissed because the restaurants are closed, man. I'm telling you, be careful. Be careful out there. Be ready. Always be on the alert. You're not, not going to have a little 10-year-old girl jumping out of a car, scaring the rats away, man. Because the rats are going to be like, uh, we want food and you look good. Let's go to the break room. I need a drink of Coca-Cola Zero Sugar desperately. And I'm going to be able to talk about uh, a book that uh, I am excited about. You've heard some of the story before. Uh, Whitey Bulger. We've seen him in movies. We've seen bits and pieces in TV shows of characters that are meant to represent Whitey, but no one knows the real story. Well, that is before the dynamic duo of Dave Wedge and Casey Sherman got together. Uh, well, they actually, they got together a few years ago on a park bench or a bar stool and decided to start writing books together. And they have written the definitive hunting Whitey available now everywhere, wherever books are sold. Dave Wedge joining us here on chewing the fat Dave. Welcome to the show. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for that uh, wonderful introduction. Absolutely. So you guys uh, decided that uh, uh, 
Whitey Bulger was the guy to write about. Now, I have been fascinated by his story for many years, but so much of what we know is just uh, stories, made-up stuff, stuff that really isn't anything to do with him. But you guys, what, took a couple of weeks to put this together, and uh, and now you have a <laughs> definitive hours. story. <laughs> couple hours. couple yeah. hours. Yeah, no, no. Look, uh, you know, Whitey's been a... Uh, one of the greatest crime stories in American history for the last 50 years. Um, you know, there's only a couple of mobsters really like him, you know, Al Capone and John Gotti and, and Bulger. Yeah. Those are really the, you know, the holy triumvirate really of, of, of evil, I guess. And, uh, you know, there has been a lot written about Whitey and, and there's been the movies, obviously, you know, the departed where Jack Nicholson plays a character based on Bulger and, and then obviously black mass with Johnny Depp and, um, but our book really picks up where those stories leave off. And we tell you the yeah. rest of the story and the end of the story. Uh, in, in the process, we also dispel some of the myths that you mentioned. Um, but really what our story is about is his life on the run, what he did on the run. And we focus a lot on the people that captured him, how they went about building that case and, and finding him finally, bringing him to justice, the incredible trial that happened, then his life in prison, yeah. and then obviously his, his wild, violent, violent murder down there in West Virginia. So yeah. we, we really look at this as, as the final chapter in the Whitey Bulger saga. So really that's what, uh, is made him so, I don't know, fascinating or I don't want to say loved, but I mean, we in America love to, you know, love the bad guy, but, and that's so, I mean, or hate to, you know, hate to love the bad guy, but really what made him, uh, remarkable were the years on the run. Right. I mean, his, uh, his, uh, his idea of, you know, being on the most wanted list and he was, you know, hiding in plain sight. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm rem you say that, you know, that we, we need to have a bad guy. I'm reminded of the scene in Scarface when he's drunk, leaving the restaurant, say, say, say bye to the bad guy, you know, and yeah. that's, that's how a lot of these guys are. They, they look at themselves as bigger than life. And certainly Whitey did. He thought that, you know, he was, uh, he thought he was really, um, helping his community is what he thought. He thought he was giving all these guys jobs, all right. these drug deal bookies and, you know, uh, you know, uh, strong armors and, and so on, you know, gun runners. And, um, you know, so he, there's a myth in, in South Boston and, and nationally really that Whitey was this benevolent gangster, but he really wasn't. He was, he was a ruthless, hardcore, uh, thug who, who, uh, really in some ways was cowardly where he would have other people do his dirty work. And he was obviously an infamous uh, uh, a rat for the FBI. Right. And uh, but what we saw in his life on the run was uh, was was fascinating, where he he befriended people along the way, and and he had a love of pets, household pets, dogs and cats, and that's really <laughs> that was the way to Whitey's heart. Everywhere his soft went spot. Around, yeah. He had a soft spot, and there's a great moment in the book, and I see. My esteemed author, Casey Sherman, has just joined us, and I'll let Casey pick up the story about uh, Whitey down in Louisiana with, with the dog. Yeah, thanks, Dave, and uh, great joining you. Uh, we've been slammed with uh, interviews all day, so unfortunately some of them run a little long. But Thank you for joining us here on Two in the Fat. Good to have you along. Uh, good, good to have you as well, uh, or good to be here rather. And uh, um, you know, to Dave's point about you know Whitey's love of pets, you know Whitey was a classic sociopath where he had a love for for dogs, but yet he had no compunction of you know strangling a human being um, with a with a a chain and extracting their teeth. 
in Grand Isle, Louisiana, Whitey Bulger and his girlfriend defriended uh, a family that was kind of down on their luck and Bulger had, was flush with cash that he had escaped with. So uh, Whitey and his girlfriend, Catherine, took this family under, under their wing, paid for their groceries, their uh, doctor's bills, uh, you name it. And they, uh, the family had a dog that was pregnant. And the dog had a litter of puppies that Whitey Bulger paid all the vet bills. One of the puppies was sick and had to be uh, euthanized. Now, here in the Northeast, we'd take that puppy to a, a veterinary clinic. But down south, they bring that puppy into the backyard, take yeah, out a gun, sure. and, and do what needs to be done. Well, Whitey Bulger was horrified about that. When that gun was revealed and that little puppy was, you know, looked staring up at the barrel of that gun, Whitey Bulger had to turn away in tears crying almost uncontrollably because he didn't want to see it. And he had to walk away before that, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that gunshot rang out. That's interesting that, uh, you know, everybody has their, uh, you know, their Achilles heel. And, uh, you know, even the bad guy that we love to hate, you know, again, another soft spot that, uh, you know, would uh, endear him to a lot of Americans, uh, you know, during the, uh, the, the Whitey story. When you guys first uh, got together on that uh, park bench or bar stool and decided to start writing books together and you uh, decided. It's over to- the bar stool. It's never a park bench. <laughs> when you guys uh, decided to uh, get into Whitey, did you find how many? How many things did you find while writing the story that you thought, wow, that's never been told? We, I mean, around every corner, there was a, a new story to be told. And, you know, Dave and I have covered the Whitey Bulger case for decades. We thought we knew everything there was to yeah. know about Whitey until we got invested in this project. And that's why we're so proud of, of the work, because we can tell us a, a totally new and fresh story about Whitey Bulger that hasn't been written about, that hasn't been talked about. And I think that comes down to the access that we were granted, the unprecedented access on kind of both sides of Whitey's life, the law enforcement side, the FBI, um, trying to hunt him down and clear the name of the Bureau after so many years. And we also got uh, unprecedented access to 70 letters that Bulger had written in his own words uh, while he was in prison. So, you know, we get into Bulger's head, I think, unlike any other journalist ever have because of all of the materials that uh, we were able to glean for this project. So we're talking to uh, Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge, uh, co-authors of uh, Hunting Whitey, available wherever books are sold. Uh, it's a, a, I'm, I cannot wait to read the entire book. Uh, one of the things that uh, we mentioned earlier was Whitey being a rat. Now, that's one of the things that kept him alive, kind of, was his dealings with the FBI, right? And we kind of see the inner workings of the FBI where we might not like it too much. Well, yeah, right. Well, Go ahead, Dave. Sorry. Yeah, yeah no, no. Well, well Whitey, uh, you know, in the trial, he tried to claim that he wasn't a rat, that it was all just a ruse, and that he was using the FBI to extract information um, to, right. to per- perpetuate his own survival. And that's partially true, but he was also giving the information too. make no mistake about it. Whitey Bulger was, uh, ratting out his, his, uh, his competition. And it was actually a genius move by him. That's the one thing yeah. you do have to give Whitey credit for is he, he did play the system like a fiddle. He found a corrupt agent, uh, several corrupt agents, uh, to be, uh, accurate. Right. Uh, you know, John Morris, everyone knows about John Connolly. Uh, but there was also other, you know, H. Paul Rico. There's, there's, and there's several 
uh, you know, there's a state trooper that they had on the payroll. So they were paying off cops left and right, um, buying and selling information, trading it. And all that really did was clear the way for Whitey Bulger to run all the rackets and create misery on the streets of Boston and, and New England for, for 30 plus years. Incredible. So his uh, many years on the run, hiding in plain sight, um, was there ever a time, you know, how many, how many times during uh, his life on the run were they close to getting him or were they never close to getting him until, you know, obviously close to the end? No, they were, they, were, they were close to getting him several times, and he was always he always managed to slip through their noose. And there's a great cat and mouse game that is played out in our book. Uh, and you know the law enforcement officials that uh, and, and cops that were chasing him, you know, gave us these stories and this information for the first time. But to, you know, going back to Dave's point in terms of Whitey Bulger creating his own mythology that informant, that he was extracting information uh, from the FBI. He also uh, loved, you know, his own lore and wanted James Cagney type of person, which wasn't, but Bulger, while he was on the run, was willing to jeopardize his own freedom to go watch the first screening of the Martin Scorsese film, The Departed which is a fictionalized version of the Whitey Bulger story. So right. here it's a very meta uh, moment in, in our book where Whitey is sitting down in a cinema in Santa, uh, San Diego watching Jack Nicholson on screen and, and shaking his head and nodding at places where he thought uh, uh, Jack had gotten it right. Well, what Bulger didn't know was that, you know, four rows behind him was a San Diego sheriff's deputy who happened to grow up in Massachusetts and was well-versed in the Whitey Bulger story. So this San Diego sheriff's deputy spots Bulger, recognizes him right away, and then follows him outside the cinema. And it's a great moment in the book in terms of how Bulger is able to elude this person uh, and then, you know, vanished wow. into thin air for several years before the FBI finally brought him down. That is, that's incredible. And as a, as how does that deputy feel? I mean, that deputy had him right there in the, in the grasp. Yeah, it, it, it's, uh, you know, again, the, the, the book really plays out like a movie, which I think is something Whitey Bulger would love if he was here to read it. He may not like how he's depicted in it, yeah. but he would certainly love the way it flows. Uh, and Bulger himself hated the FBI with such determination and scorn that, you know, if Bulger told the FBI this, that if he was, you know, getting into uh, his late 80s and early 90s and knew he was sick and maybe only had a few months to live, he would have driven to Nevada, found an old abandoned mine shaft and just dropped down into it so that his body would never be found. So that the mystery of Whitey Bulger would never be erased. Right. It would always be alive. That is fascinating. So the book is Hunting Whitey, uh, the inside story of the capture and wanted crime boss. You said that uh, while writing it, uh, you you know almost every corner you turned was information that kind of uh, caught you by surprise. What was the, the the number one surprise in the book that you thought, oh my gosh, nobody knows that? Boy, that's that's hard to pin down. Dave, do you have a, an answer for that? Well, I mean, I, I think for, for me, it's, you know, we have a couple of uh, exclusive photos that have never before been seen of Whitey in prison in Tucson, Arizona. 
Um, and they're the last known pictures of Whitey Bulger ever taken. And when we got these pictures from from uh, one of the men that he served time with, uh, to me, my mind was blown because here was a guy that uh, the reason his mythology existed was because he hated having his picture taken. The only pictures out there that existed of him were a couple of pictures that were uh, kind of stolen from family and friends, but really the surveillance photos of right. the FBI. That he looks like a big, tough gangster, and he's got his you know tight T-shirt and his hair slicked back, and he looks like a, a boyo from the you know from the hood. But here's this picture of this 89-year-old man or 88-year-old man in prison standing with some gangsters, and he just looks like an old man. And uh, yeah. so I was really surprised that, that Bulger even allowed that picture to be taken. And uh, believe me, when Casey and I saw it, we were like, wow, we got something here. Did he even know it? Did he even know the picture was taken? Well, yeah, he is posing for it. Okay, that good. For okay the there you go. Yeah. You know, yep. in, his, in his life. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, it, during the, his time in prison, obviously, you know, we later corresponded with the, uh, the prime suspect in Bulger's murder who was writing us with rubber tip pencils from inside solitary confinement at Misery Mountain, the uh, wow. prison that uh, Bulger was killed at. And he's writing us with rubber tip pencils because they won't give him anything sharp because they're afraid that he'll kill himself or try to stab one of the guards. Um, but what we didn't know was that Bulger had an attempt on his life uh, just after he'd gotten convicted and was placed in uh, federal penitentiary for the first time. And another inmate made a run at him and almost took him out. And wow. uh, we have that story for the first time. And there's just so many new reveals in this story, in this book that we're so extremely, uh, you know, fortunate to have uh, uncovered. I cannot wait to read the entire thing. Casey Sherman, Dave Wedge, uh, co-authors of uh, Hunting Whitey. So uh, now that you guys took a couple weeks together and put this thing together, uh, what's <laughs> next? What's well, next? We have a, uh, <laughs> so we wrote a book in 2000. Uh, it took us a couple hours. Uh, but we, we wrote a book in yeah. 2018 about uh, Deflate Gate and uh, that fight with Tom Brady. Yeah. Uh, it's really a story about, uh, about you know, the NFL's battle with the union and the way that uh, Goodell tried to assert control over the league. And um, with all the drama that's happened with Tom Brady since, yeah. since that book came out, leaving, leaving the Patriots and uh, going to Tampa Bay. We have updated that book, and uh, that comes out in paperback in uh, September. So we're excited about that as well. And, and we also have a book coming out in December, uh, co-authored by James Patterson. And it, it, it chronicles the final days of John Lennon and his assassination. Oh. Uh, this is the 40th anniversary of Lennon's assassination coming up on December 8th, 2020. And we take you into that story unlike anybody else has taken anybody into that story before. So, and we still have, I mean, we still have, uh, you know, his assassin or his assassin, uh, you know, stories about him, uh, are still abounding around. Correct. Us. Mark so. David Chapman, his motivation and, and how he did it. And also all the eyewitnesses around at the time. And, and, you know, we uncover things that about John Lennon that nobody else really knew before. And the fact that he had been targeted by a terrorist group, which brought him really kind of underground uh, later on in his life. People wondered why he was such a recluse in yeah. the last five years of his life. He was, you know, raising his son Sean on one one hand, but he had also had serious threats 
uh, for his life and the life of his family by a terrorist group at the time. So it's a really unique story that uh, we can't wait for people to read as well. That is that is interesting. I can't wait to talk to you about that. Casey Sturman, Dave Wedge. Uh, of course, the, the book that we're uh, mean for you to read and enjoy now is Hunting Whitey. Uh, thank you gentlemen for joining us on chewing the fat i appreciate it and uh and uh good luck we'll talk to you in the future thanks so much thanks a lot all right let's get to the coronavirus numbers uh with the coronavirus update here in the uh cqb today uh coming in the home stretch uh, we're going to be back at Mercury Studios next week, I think. So it's looking that way right now. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, total cases uh, worldwide, 5,638,033. 349,323 deaths. Uh, here in the United States of America, we have 5 million, I mean, we have 1 million 713,463 total cases. And yes, according to World Meters, which is where I give you the numbers from every day, the United States has topped 100,000. We now are, they have it listed as 100,046. So be ready for the, uh, the fanfare of that today and tomorrow. Uh, that uh, how horrific it is and it really is horrific but remember what we talked about uh it i've thought for sure that we were going to hit that uh, before now so we have really uh flattened the curve like they wanted us to and uh, it's time to uh it's time to break out it's time to break out has china has china passed the mythical eighty-three thousand total case mark Let's see what they have as of right now. Oh, man, we are close. 82,992. We have not. We have not broken that 83,000 mark. But we're getting we're getting to the point now where that they, they aren't going to be able to stop it. But they do have new cases. They have seven new cases. So, I mean, there's that. So it's going to, I don't know if they're going to allow 83,000 to hit uh, by Friday or if we just keep adding one every day for the next seven or eight days and just slow that down a little bit. It does appear that uh, it is unstoppable now. They will hit that uh, 83,000 mark. TSA turnstile checkpoint numbers, oh, 340,769 through the turnstiles yesterday. Wow. Memorial Day numbers through the roof. Not the highest since uh, we said they were back. Uh, four days ago, four or five days ago, they were at 348, which is going into the weekend, right into the three-day weekend, and then 340. Oh, my gosh. 8,000 people did not return. What happened to them? 348,673 left four days ago. And 340,769 returned. They, I mean, it's almost 8,000 people did not return. What's going on? So it could be back. I mean, the airlines are, uh, I mean, every, everybody is still struggling. I mean, Delta had uh, big computer issues over the weekend. 
uh, out of good luck. If you, some of you may still be stuck because of that. I mean, wow. I doubt it though, because so few people are flying that it's when there is an, es- an issue, you know, uh, while dozens of flights are disrupted and uh, so few people are flying that it doesn't affect as many people. So you might not hear about it. And, you know, so I hope that those of you that were caught in that melee are still are already gone and it's taken care of hurts another, you know, domino effect files for bankruptcy. Uh, there, uh, you know, look, the car rental industry is just part of the deal, right? That is part of the deal. And that's, it's just where we're at now, right? I want to read you something, uh, during the podcast, uh, which is the reason you should subscribe to chewing the fat, because if you're listening to this and you're not a subscriber, <laughs> Uh, I don't know what you're doing with your life, but you should be a subscriber uh, to Chewing the Fat because there's so much more than what you're getting for free. And plus, you don't want to be a freeloader your whole life, right? You just don't want to be that. Um, So subscribe to Chewing the Fat and get on with your life. So the domino effect of all businesses, I want to read you something during the podcast about capitalism that is uh, just an incredible uh, an incredible moment for you to think that yes, that's what's happened. I mean, we've we've kind of shown really during this lockdown and pandemic that there are no real <sighs> jobs that are unimportant. You know, the non-essential employee really, when you start when the dominoes start to fall, uh, are essential. And so I think we need to, you know, rethink the way we actually look at things. Um, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. And I know that South America, now we talked about it last week. Remember, we talked about the guy in Peru and how bad things were getting in Brazil. Well, here you go. The U.S. has now restricted travel uh, from Brazil. So, I mean, Brazil has turned into one of the epicenters. Well, South America, according to who uh, is, uh, you know, an epicenter and Brazil is on fire with COVID-19. So, I mean, you're, if you're, you can't even leave Brazil and come to the U S and we have plenty of countries that are, you know, thinking about opening travel back up and Europe, we talked last week about doing their, uh, you know, their bubble travel where uh, one country says, yeah, you can come from this country and you can go back and forth, but all the other countries around you can't. And there's uh, plenty of places that are opening up and they're saying you can come here, but uh, you can come here from anywhere, but you have to get into the 14 day quarantine. I mean, unless you live in a country where you weren't able to get back to because of this lockdown, and now you're able to get back to your home country, why would you travel somewhere and actually make that your destination? And then have to go into quarantine for 14 days before you even get to do anything else in that country. I don't even know why they do that in Hawaii. I don't even know why you do that. It makes zero sense to me. Zero sense at all. And of course, you know, on top of uh, countries opening up, I mean, uh, states are opening up. And now we're getting back to uh, states are saying that... uh, evictions can resume so i don't know what you people are going to do that didn't pay your rent 
and did work out a deal with your landlord about the time of the time of settling is coming due. Uh, there's there's all, all kinds of uh, programs that I mean I mean I know they went dry almost immediately. I mean the rental assistance program in Houston ran out of funding in like an hour uh, when it opened up. But the, all these businesses, I mean, guess what? The owner of your apartment or house, uh, they've got bills too. I mean, it's it's just an incredible downfall right now. Look, I mean, Chipotle, Chipotle and uh, Duncan, Shake Shack, they are lobbying property owners to defer rental payments and or they've renegotiated leases. Starbucks has told landlords it's going to require concessions. I mean, that's the difference between you and Starbucks, right? Starbucks has, uh, you know, leases uh, all over the world. And they're saying, look, uh, we're, uh, we're going to seek these concessions. Like that concession means we're not going to pay you for a while. And then we'll, we'll decide when we start paying you again. And you're going to allow us to open up. And that's just the way it is. Whereas when you say, hey, uh, I'm going to need some concessions uh, uh, to, uh, to, before I start paying rent again here at this apartment complex. And uh, the concession is, uh, hopefully the deputy sheriff doesn't come and throw you out. That's kind of the difference between uh, Starbucks and you. Download and subscribe to more content at theblaze.com slash podcasts. New York Stock Exchange back open for business with traders today, too. So we'll see uh, the horror of what happens there. Uh, I know that they all had to be in their anti-coronavirus bubble. Uh, on the stock exchange. I, I mean to tell you, you know, I was thinking about this this weekend about uh, football. And I know that I know that many of you, you know, don't care about sports. And I get it. I really do. I understand it. And, and, and I, I, it just, the way that it has been intertwined in American fabric with football, and I'm talking about college and NFL, if we don't have football, in this country this fall, I think it's not, I think we're not, it's not going to be a pretty time in the U S I mean, we could talk about businesses and restaurants trying to open up at 25%. Okay. And we could talk about, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the weirdness of everyone having the social distance. And we could talk about people getting hollered at for not having their stupid mask on. And we could talk about, uh, the police department. We have one police department telling residents to stop calling 911 to report social distance violations. Are you kidding me? You call it 911 because some guy walked in a six foot circumference of you or someone else? Stop it. Toledo, and that was in Toledo, Ohio. I mean, even in the worst state in the Union of Ohio, at least the police department smartened up. They're telling people, stop it. I don't even know if they told them to call or, you know, please do it. It's all a suggestion. Anyway, it's not a law. And I'm glad that some of the governors, I see the governors are allowing us to come back outside. It was nice of them to allow us to do that. But anyway, I digress. I feel like if we are unable to have some kind of football, some kind of deal in this country, I mean, that is a big 
big deal. When you think about how many stadiums every weekend, Thursday through Sunday, and specifically Saturday and Sunday, were filled with 100,000 people in each stadium. And I know, we'll say, we'll, we'll say 50,000. 50 to 100,000 people to enjoy a game. And now you're saying that that game can't even happen? And if it happens, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to go and enjoy it. Uh, we as Americans, I don't think are going to stand for that. I really don't. I really don't. And the downfall of that, of, the, of financial and civilly and just psychological is going to be incredible. I don't know that we can do it. I don't know that we can do it. And I was reminded by a Facebook post uh, who tagged uh, the Pat Gray Unleashed Facebook page uh, over the weekend. I loved it. It was, it was from uh, Joe Green. And I don't know if Joe did this. I don't know if it was his original post. I don't know who it belonged to, but it is great. A guy looked at my Corvette the other day and said, I wonder how many people could have been fed for the money that sports car cost. And I replied, I'm not sure. It fed a lot of families in Bowling Green, Kentucky who built it. It fed the people who make the tires. It fed the people who made the components that went into it. It fed the people in the copper mine who mined the copper for the wires. It fed the people in Decatur, Illinois at Caterpillar who make the trucks that haul the copper ore. It fed the trucking people who hauled it from the plant to the dealer and fed the people working at the dealership and their families. But I have to admit, I guess I really don't know how many people it fed. Amen. I mean, that is the difference. This is back to the post again. That is the difference between capitalism and welfare mentality. When you buy something, you put money in people's pockets and give them dignity for their skills. When you give someone something for nothing, you rob them of their dignity and self. Capitalism is freely giving your money in exchange for something of value. Socialism is taking your money against your will and shoving something down your throat that you never asked for. Amen. That's something that this network, the Blaze Television, Radio, and Podcast Network, preaches and believes in. That's what's supposed capitalism has saved the world. And will save it again under this, under this pandemic cloud that we're all living under now. That is just amazing to me that we have forgotten that and we need to not forget it and we need to be reminded of it and remind others of it every freaking day now having said that this is chewing the fat thank you so much for coming along for the ride today and i just want to remind you that don't forget that even though we can't say anything bad about china google youtube Facebook or taking down posts claiming that it's going against, uh, it's for our own good. It's for our own darn good. Okay. And we just, we're just going to delete those posts. We have Facebook deleting posts from grandmas in Europe because they have, have pictures of their grandkids up. I mean, well, I'll get to that story tomorrow. It's just incredible to me, incredible to me what's going on with our social media. And that's why I said the other day, 
what uh you know youtube is busy taking down stuff uh almost instantaneously 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 instantly instantaneously yeah instantaneously something like that uh youtube is taking it down almost immediately <laughs> you know darn dear like that uh well, I thought that the deal that uh, Rogan did with Spotify was such a big deal because he's throwing in the towel on the rest of these dickleberries and uh, putting it behind Spotify so that uh, things aren't going to get uh, deleted and dropped when a company decides that they don't like something. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that capitalism at work? Ha! Yes, it is. Oh, 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 oh,